and welcome to Didian Hawthorne and the In-Between, your place for everything reading and language related. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gentz. Now bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. Hello and herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. During today's episode, we are going to discuss a writer whom we ironically have never discussed before on the show. And that writer is Nathaniel Hawthorne. When I started up the show three full years ago, I absolutely anticipated that we would review The Scarlet Letter at the very least, or The Blythedale Romance, but no such luck. So I relegated our first episode on Hawthorne strategically to today, because today is our last episode of Didion Hawthorne and the In-Between before we change the show's name, which is happening this upcoming week on August 1st, and there will be a full episode on that, but I'll do a little bit of explaining right now. To evade the barrage of incoming questions of what in the world is happening around the renaming process, I preemptively have some simple answers for you all. First off, we are changing the name to make it easier for all of us. The new name is easier to remember, easier to search on the interwebs, easier to make an acronym out of, trust me, and if you can believe it, it also pays homage to our current name at the same time, so it does a lot of work for us. Secondly, nothing else is changing, (laughs) literally nothing, aside from the show's look. So our logo's changing. I designed the new logo myself. Super happy with it. I hope you guys will like it too. And the show's name, of course, will be changing. You can anticipate some rocking content coming up on the show, but it's nothing that we haven't talked about already, especially if you're on Patreon you have a pretty good idea of what's upcoming. We're still going to continue our summer YA series with some really cool summer YA books. I have a lot of those episodes that I'm in the process of recording right now. We're still going to read Brothers K and some more Russian lit eventually. We're moving towards that in 2022. Horrifying Classics 2021 is already well underway. I'm super excited to announce the theme of that come September. And we're gearing up to do some more short story episodes, which I'm not gonna lie to you guys, gonna be super honest, those are my favorites. Episodes like this one, like last week's episode as well. I love short story episodes, so we'll get to a lot more of those in September and shortly. Also, I have a surprise at the end of the show today. I have a montage of all of the introductions that the show has ever had, and it's kind of crazy to me that we're at this point of re-giving a new face, rebranding, renaming, whatever you want to call it. Uh, on the show, I can't believe that we're growing out of the old shell, so to speak, that we started out the show with, so it's a crazy time for me, and um, I just want to let you know that I'm so grateful for all of you listening and all of you tuning in. It's been such a blast, 
and I'm not going to be trading out hobbies anytime soon. So again, stay tuned at the end of the episode. I'll give you fair warning, but there's going to be a really fun three or four minute audio clip of all of the different intros we've had. It features all of our guests whom we've ever had on the show, and it was super fun for me personally to go back on the different faces that the show has had already, even under our current name, and see how much the show has grown, uh, I hope, in quality over the years. About the author. I get less questions about our current show name, Diddy and Hawthorne in the in-between, than I anticipated when I first made the show. For one, I wanted as much variation between the two authors as I could muster for their names to still sound good together. I tried out, these are embarrassing, Didion, Sedaris, and the in-between, Conrad, Didion, and the in-between, and nothing really stuck, obviously, until I landed on Hawthorne. As an aside, though, Hawthorne and Didion are both American, which was a commonality that I tried to avoid because of all the international lit we do, but I digress. Nathaniel Hawthorne, American author, was born in Salem, Massachusetts on July 4th, America's birthday, 1804. Interestingly, his family participated as judges throughout early American history, i.e. starting in about the 17th century, in events such as Plymouth during the religious trials as well as during the Salem witch trials. If you know anything about Hawthorne's work, some of those particular events are featured in novels like The Scarlet Letter. After the death of Hawthorne's father, Hawthorne lived with his wealthy maternal uncles until he went to college at Bowdoin in Maine. Thereafter, he took some time before launching into the writing career that he is known for today. As always, all of our sources for today's episode, the ones that we use for this short biography, as well as the ones we'll launch into later, are linked at relevanceofliteratures.com slash notes under the show notes for today's episode. The Birthmark The tale that we are diving into during this episode is, as you all know from the title, of course, The Birthmark, which is said to highlight Hawthorne's powers of allegory and symbolism. I mean, I certainly agree with that assessment after reading it, so probably you will too. A PDF of the short story, by the way, is linked in the show notes for this episode, so you could pause right now and read. You could read it after the show, before the show, whatever. Uh, It is there for you. Okay, to delve into a quick plot summary of the short story, we've got Aylmer, a young scientist who is essentially a chemist, but he is also somewhat of a magician as well. We'll get to that in a minute. He marries this woman named Georgiana, Georgiana has a birthmark in the shape of a hand on one of her cheeks, and the birthmark is bright red, so it's very, very small. She says she can cover it with two fingers, yet it becomes a point of immediate fixation for Elmer as he marries Georgiana. 
over Georgiana's life, there have been different reactions to this birthmark. Some men who have courted her have called it this kiss of a fairy's hand. A lot of uh, young women who are perhaps jealous of her call it the bloody hand. Yet, we get the sense that Georgiana's a well-off young woman, she's well-endowed, um, she's very beautiful, very intelligent, and she is adored by the people who know her. But again, Eilmer really can't stand the birthmark, and this is something that seems like catches him off guard after they get married. The birthmark starts to completely captivate Eilmer in his waking thoughts and also in his dreams. There is a quote from page three where he is in the middle of a dream and Georgiana hears him utter, utter quote, it is in her heart now, we must have it out, unquote. And I think what is most devastating about this short story, aside from the ending, which Okay, we're gonna spoil that in a second, but what's most devastating is that Georgiana comes into the marriage liking her birthmark and taking the comments of the people who admire it to heart, and she really enjoys that little curiosity about her complexion. And then she learns from this new guy, <laughs> this new husband, to hate the birthmark and to hate the skin that she's been given and I found that to be so tragic and so devastating and it motivates the end of the plot as it comes up. So they devise a plan to scientifically get rid of the, the birthmark. They devise to go to Einlar's lab where he has outfitted it for a natural lady, a natural beauty. It looks very nice. It looks kind of like a, an, a rich person's estate or like a vacation estate. And there's a couple of comments about uh, different symbols in there, like the curtains being really luxurious, but keeping out the light all the same. And so there's it's just a picture of luxury at this old laboratory converted into this parlor area. They arrive at the labs and Eilmar shudders so hard when he sees the birthmark and he kind of just glances back at her and shudders that Georgiana faints and she's gone into this kind of state of high anxiety over the whole thing and she can't stand him looking at her anymore. And we get this interesting comment from Eilmar's assistant who is described as the figure of man. He's very base, humanistic kind of a figure. Perfect laboratory assistant because in Eilmar's eyes, he doesn't understand any of the science, yet he can do all of the physical work to a T. So they're kind of foiled together in that way. Eilmar is the brains and his assistant is the brawn. But the assistant sees this beautiful woman and he mutters to himself, I would not take away that birthmark for the world. 
So as soon as they get into the chambers and Georgiana's revived, Almar decides to show her essentially some magic tricks and his powerful potions a bit later, and he does what seems like a projectionist's kind of trick, and then as well a trick where a flower grows super rapidly and then disintegrates. He shows her his elixir of quote-unquote immortality, where if they, someone drinks it and he controls the portions of that drink, they will die in a set amount of time that he can dictate. Lots of different interesting potions that this mad scientist of sorts has come up with in his career. Interestingly, I found this comment to stick out so much in the short story, but Georgiana believes after some time that she is under some influence, and she happens to be quite right, and she um, submits herself wholly to not only what she believes to be the scientific process here, but also to her husband, and like I said, tragically, she's adopted his own beliefs about this birthmark, that if she gets rid of this birthmark, she'll be a picture of perfect beauty, she'll be, in some senses, immortal, she won't have this mark of human mortality and imperfection on her face, and she will not have to worry about those things by proxy. As Georgiana is stuck in these chambers for some time, she ends up turning to her husband's scientific library where she ends up falling upon his autobiography of sorts. It's a description of all of his scientific endeavors, achievements, failures, all of it. And she realizes that although she adores his success and his natural tendency towards excellence, she also realizes that he never meets his own idealistic expectations. So in that sense, he is completely idealistic, he has these grand notions for everything, yet everything he does falls short, even if it meets great scientific acclaim and scientific gain. So, Almar visits her in the chambers one day, and she starts to get a tingling in the mark. She doesn't really tell him about it immediately, and uh, she goes to his laboratory to tell him, hey, I've had a new development, and she gets yelled at, and Comes, the whole story comes to a head at this really interesting point or juncture where Almar is shouting, don't you trust me? Don't you trust the process? And she's saying, yes, I trust you, and yet you don't trust me. And it's this heartbreaking moment where you realize that Georgiana knows that she's come to the laboratory for a death sentence. And a death sentence, unfortunately, is what she gets. If Almar eventually gets the potion to her right after their fight, so it happens. And he tests it on a plant on the way in. And the plant, of course, does wonderfully. And Georgiana, once she drinks the potion, goes into a deep sleep. The birthmark starts fading in and out. 
and it fades just to this rose-colored kind of shade that would easily be covered by any sort of blush or good coloration in her, healthy coloration. And she wakes up for one last gasping moment and she says, yes, but I'm dying. The birthmark is gone, but that was my mortality right there. And there's an excellent quote on the last page that will have to read and dive into. So yeah, unfortunately an extremely tragic ending for this young woman and this story and there's definitely a bit of a moral tendency that this story goes at the end, which we'll talk about. Quotes and further analysis. The first quote I'll read is on page three. Quote, in this manner, selecting it as the symbol of his wife's liability to sin, sorrow, decay, and death, Almer's sombre imagination was not long in rendering the birthmark a frightful object, causing him more trouble and horror than ever Georgina's beauty, Georgiana's beauty, whether of soul or sense, had given him delight. Unquote. You know, this quote appears right out of the gates of this short story, and I found it to be particularly revealing of the kind of narrator, the kind of character that Eimler is. Eimler. And that's a hard name to say, you all. It's a, apparently a city in Ontario. It's also a city in Quebec. A-Y-L-M-E-R. Eimler. Hard. All right. So it gives us this really particular, I think, pinching sense of what this character is like. It's, um, this character has these kind of obsessions, these fixations, and this birthmark becoming a fixation for him means that it's become a symbol of everything that he is afraid of in his wife, whether that be her propensity to sin like all mortals, by the way, <laughs> uh, whether it be her propensity to age or perhaps to change in other ways, perhaps to die, and all of these in his imagination are becoming connected with the birthmark and so he thinks if I can get rid of this birthmark a lot of those problems will be solved and every time I look at my wife I won't think of these horrible things that could happen to her that are part of her nature as a human being. It's a really dangerous way to think especially you know right out of the gate of this short story but it definitely tell is so telling to how the short story ends up, how it develops. The pacing of this short story I think is relatively fast and it's no wonder because this guy has this long list of bucket list of accomplishments etc that he is just plowing through and he ends up procuring this potion to supposedly solve the birthmark issue relatively quickly, you know, the short story is like 15 pages long max, so it's it's really interesting that Hawthorne would give, I think, such a damning characterization right at the outset. 
You can also definitely feel the romanticism in Hawthorne's writing in the short story. Hawthorne was a romantic writer. He was kind of a naturalist in some senses, um, in that in this early period of romanticism, American romanticism I should say, and British romanticism is similar in some respects, a bit different in others, so we'll stick with American romanticism during this time period, the 1800s. Um, it's, it has a lot to do with this connection of man and God and nature. We'll talk about the transcendentalist movement in a minute. And this kind of romanticism is so prevalent in, for example, The Scarlet Letter in Hawthorne's writing. This kind of interesting characterization of Hester Prynne as this like primal being of sorts and also her daughter Pearl as this like nymph and dwarf. Just so fascinating uh, in, in that way of connecting those characters to maybe a more base way of looking at them, but also a more naturalistic way of looking at them. There's a lot of scenes, for example, in The Scarlet Letter in the forest and other scenes of nature. And this story, while it doesn't have really that outdoors quality, there's no, you know, scenes outdoors, for instance, there are these naturalistic, elemental kind of pathways that Aylmer eventually ends up pursuing in his thought processes, in his how he conceptualizes science, how he conceptualizes the birthmark, and going all across his life as a scientist, for example. So there's a lot of naturalism in this short story, even though we don't really have much of the natural. You know, there's a couple scenes here where Aylmer uh, experiments on plants, and that's a really interesting juxtaposition of how he treats these plant specimens almost the same way as how he treats his wife as a an experiment. Um, there's a lot to be said there, but in any case, just this beautiful romantic writing really comes out. There's, you know, something as benign or simple as a birthmark becomes of ultimate moralistic importance in this short story and that's not a coincidence that is a characteristic of this time period writing of writing this style of writing all right let's go to page five of the short story i'm not gonna lie to you guys i knew that georgiana was gonna die at this page, five pages in, and I didn't want to be a Debbie Downer and say that during the plot summary, but it just, it struck me viscerally that I knew that this poor woman was going to meet a tragic end, of course, right? We're scarlet lettering this. I don't know, the ending of scarlet letter is interesting, but that is neither here nor there. Quote on page five, Quote, here too, at an earlier period, he had studied the wonders of the human frame and attempted to fathom the very process by which nature assimilates all her precious influences from earth and air and from the spiritual world to create and foster man her masterpiece. Unquote. So we have this kind of resume 
of Eilmer's work and it talks about his other things that he's investigated about the natural world, again another tie to romanticism and naturalism here, uh, and it talks about his fascination with the human form and with human endeavor and this little short list of what he's accomplished and what he's looked at made me realize that he is working in a headspace of ideals and a physical space of imperfection. And like what Georgiana recognizes in his work from reading his autobiography or his summary of achievements later in the short story, I realized at this point that he was not going to ever achieve an ideal. And that is the crux of this short story that this man has good intentions, maybe. I'm not sure even about that, to be honest. Um, but that is partially my modern viewpoint of right women and beauty standards, for example. And he certainly has these ideals in full view. He seems to be very articulate about them and he knows exactly what he's striving for, yet something that he is too naive to notice in his own work and his own life as a pattern that keeps coming up again and again. It's very obvious to me as I'm reading this uh, as it was to Georgiana in the short itself. He does not ever achieve the ideal that he sets out for. And so he kind of mires himself in these scientific achievements, these scientific accolades that he's been collecting, and mires himself in the wash of a feeling of this falsity of achievements that he's created. And it's not that what he's doing is not real, it's not a perfect achievement in itself, but it's not his intention. And his intentions here are also very idealistic, very perfectionistic, for example, and the pattern is so clear, and we know, based on his track record, that this is not going to go well. Another thing that I noticed fairly early on in the short is that the birthmark is so much like Hester Prynne's letter A, i.e. the Scarlet Letter in uh, The Scarlet Letter. This short story was written in 1843, seven years before The Scarlet Letter in 1850, and I have to wonder, much like my deep dive into Kurt Vonnegut early in my love and discovery of literature, if Hawthorne wasn't trying out this idea of creating a physical symbol to represent so many deep moral implications in this short story and then perfecting it before he got to his more notable work, The Scarlet Letter. This is something that Vonnegut definitely does. He reuses characters, he reuses drawings, he reuses settings and symbols and phrases. He reuses uh, imaginary and conceptual frameworks, and that's something in the corpus of Vonnegut's work that I find to be so fascinating and entrenching, and definitely Vonnegut has been one of the most premier authors in my ability to dissect and understand literature, just because I found his postmodern style to be so fascinating over the years. 
And now we arrive at Hawthorne and Transcendentalism. Awesome. So, Transcendentalism, other than being a super long, fun trivia word that is great to say out loud, has a lot of different components. Uh, there's some roots in Romanticism, which makes sense, a la Hawthorne, and some roots in German idealism. Not sure how much uh, influence Hawthorne might have had from German idealists. My guess is not much, so I'm gonna stick with the ties to Romanticism on this one. There are a couple of traits uh, within this movement. We've discussed some of them already. For example, the interconnectedness of people, nature, and God. I would also add maybe an optimism that mankind can overcome its base nature through intellect, through practice, for example. And I think that Hawthorne's variety of transcendentalism really goes towards this idea of nature, interconnectedness, dramaticism, and maybe a bit of optimism. Not in this story. I find The Scarlet Letter to be somewhat more optimistic. That is definitely something that you should look at yourself as you go into The Scarlet Letter if you would like to I need to read it again is what I've realized in this episode because reading this short story, um, Hawthorne has such a distinctive style. As soon as you start reading the short story, you realize, I know this guy, I know this is Hawthorne. It's like Joan Didion. As soon as you start reading a Didion piece, you know it's Didion. And there's, there's just this iconic voice that these authors are able to encapsulate and it's it's amazing to read, so I guess I just need to read The Scarlet Letter. That's my lesson at the end of this. I also found some interesting parallels in this short story with uh, other short stories across the, across the movement, I guess, in the Americas. Um, the Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe. There's a lot of themes of guilt and mortality and perfectionism and these kinds of obsessions that come up in uh, The Telltale Heart as well. I remember reading The Telltale Heart for the first time when I was in, I don't know, seventh grade or something, and it just struck me as so profound that this author would go that deep into the mental state of, and this sort of romantic or overly dramatic mental state of this killer. And I feel this, I feel similarly about the main character, Eilmar, he, Eilmar here, in that we really get this sense of dramaticism, like it's life or death, and it is, it ends up being, of course, in both short stories. Um, but it's it's fascinating that they would immediately turn up the volume to that level on the short story, especially considering this very roundabout prose that Hawthorne has, very prone to being overly descriptive, overly flowery. It's one of, again, the most recognizable proses, and Hawthorne is as flowery as Hemingway is a brutalist in a sense. So it's it's amazing writing and again I would highly recommend reading something by Hawthorne whether it's this short story or Scarlet Letter or the Blythdale Romance. Can't go wrong. Something that frustrated me throughout this short story was how Georgiana 
naively conflates Eilmer's love of idealism and perfection with his love for her, and I'm not sure they're the same thing. I think that Georgiana wants to believe that Eilmer really loves her deeply and is doing this for her in a sense, but that kind of manipulation where he's kind of budged and budged and budged and moved her boundaries more and more with her own self and she's obviously given him a say into how she feels about herself, which again, heartbreaking. This is one of the most tragic things about this story as I keep saying, but he suddenly gets a say in her decision making for her own beauty and again, how she views herself how she approaches the world, in a sense, because she starts covering her face when Almer wants to look at her, and she becomes ashamed where before she was so contented. And I'm aghast that she's conflated his perfectionism and love of idealism and love of aestheticism with his love for her because they're not the same thing. I don't think that they should be conflated. Obviously, I think that it's dangerous to conflate them and to put that much on the line and to become that deep and an issue of self-abasement. Um, it's just not worth it. This is, in some ways, I realized as I was finishing the end of the story, one of the classic don't change for your loved ones kind of stories. It's it's like the Romeo and Juliet motif where you start reading a story and you realize, oh man, the one partner wants the other partner to change so much that they don't become themselves anymore, X, Y, Z, and that's certainly the case here. I find it to be interesting that those tropes come up again and again. I don't think that's necessarily like particularly meaningful for this short story, but I do find it interesting that this trope came up in this particular short story. Alright, let's read a quote from the last page of this short. Quote, Yet had Alamer reached a profounder wisdom, he need not thus have flung away the happiness which would have woven his mortal life of the self-same texture with the celestial. The momentary circumstance was too strong for him. He failed to look beyond the shadowy scope of time and, living once for all and eternity, to find the perfect future in the present." Unquote. What a huge, amazing bit of wisdom in this last page. I'm reading Love People Use Things by the Minimalists right now, Joshua Fields Milburn and Ryan Nicodemus. I'll link that book in the description as well as our episode on the Telltale Heart. And that's one of the wise things in that book is this recognition that when you live for the future, when you live for your ideal self, when you live for happiness in place of contentment or in place of joy, you end up forsaking so much of life. And what a devastating, hard lesson to learn in this short story, right? It costs to this beautiful young woman, Georgiana. And yet, what an important lesson to learn. And I think that's one of the great things about Hawthorne's writing is there's a, a really high moral 
character in his writing and he ends up pursuing a lot of moral themes and tropes that we end up digesting as readers along the way. All right, y'all, that is it for our reading today and analysis. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. The short story is excellent. As I said, everything uh, is linked in the description at relevanceofliterature.com slash notes under the show notes for this episode. We have got a three to four minute long montage of all of the titles that DH and I has ever had. I'm so excited to debut this, so cue the montage of titles, please, maestro. Warm welcome to our Thursdays with David Foster Wallace series, where we every week investigate the infamous Infinite Jest. Hello and welcome to Didion Hawthorne and the In-Between, your place for everything reading and language related. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gentz. Now bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. Hello and herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. Today, today is the show's second review of the masterwork Emma by Jane Austen. Hello and welcome to Didion Hawthorne in the In-Between, or DH&I. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gens, and you're listening to our podcast about the relevance of literature in the 21st century. Now bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. Hello and herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. Today's topic is one that got splashed onto me. Hello, hello, herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. Today we are discussing everything paper. Ho, ho, ho. Guten Abend, lovely listeners, and it is Christmas Eve, a fitting time, I think, to discuss A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. Hello and herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. I am not going to skirt around the issue here. I really miss our horrifying classic series. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gens, and you're listening to our podcast about the relevance of literature in the 21st century. Now bookmark that book, and let's begin. Happy belated Halloween, and welcome to our spooktastic programming for the month of October. That's right, Horrifying Classics 2020. I'm sitting across from Lucien Dieter, a student at nearby Arizona State University. Today I'm sitting across from a very special guest and one of my oldest friends, Jenny Peterson. I'm here with Priya Fink, who is a music performance major at DePaul University. It is a beautiful Thursday afternoon, and I have the pleasure today of going downtown to talk to this week's guest, Morgan Wallace. She's a competitive swimmer, but also a legitimate intellectual, one that was brilliant and adamant enough to get accepted into Johns Hopkins University, where she will be attending in the fall. This person is, of course, Kristen Alisea. 
It is a lovely Sunday evening, and I have the opportunity to talk with one of my colleagues, Adam Worst, about all things dystopian today. Gabby Chioka is the perfect person to dissect a pop culture book with us today, and so I hope that you get a lot out of this discussion of the very popular Crazy Rich Asians trilogy. Hi, listeners to Mackenzie's podcast. I'm Raphael. I'm Polish. You want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Brianna. This podcast, of course, will not be edited, and this is a prerequisite that I told Lizzie before. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. Hello and herzlich willkommen zu unserem podcast. I have a very special guest with me today. It is my friend, Jenny. Hello. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.